reflect on practice of meditation as I was devoted to subject of aspects of meditation <clears throat> and what I've always tried to stress in as the important thing in meditation rather than technique or tradition is our attitude the right attitude is the most important even if you have the best teacher or the best tradition and the best method, if your attitude isn't right, it won't work. So that many people, as I've witnessed, uh, uh, since I've started meditation, uh, many people go about it with an attitude that uh, maybe with a lot of faith or a lot of hope, expectation from kind of the, uh, from the technique but the attitude is always one of gaining or attaining, achieving. Now, a worldly attitude is very much based on that. And we're conditioned uh, in, through our education, our society, to always uh, see life as something that we have to uh, use to attain, to become. On the worldly level, this, this is uh, the way it is. We have to go to schools and learn to read and write. We have to uh, do all kinds of things in order to become something, gain something, attain something. But the practice of Dharma and the uh, enlightenment is not something that one ever attains or achieves. And this is a difficult thing to comprehend if, with the intellect, because the intellect is very much that which is conditioned to think in terms of gaining. Now the Dhamma, Nibbana, these two words, they say the Dhamma the, the, the and Nibbana, these are the two words which are uh, quite untranslatable in, in, into any language. And we try to, we say the Dhamma is the ultimate reality or whatever, best we can do with the English language. Nibbana, what, what, how would we define or, or uh, describe Nibbana, Nirvana? <clears throat> and these two words are significant for Buddhists because of the very fact that they really are not words that can be explained with so many concepts. Because they're, they're realizations rather than things. It's a uh, what we realize rather than something we ever attain or achieve. So when we're meditating, our intention is always inclining to Nibbana. The, the whole point of a, of a Buddhist meditation, rather than towards attaining a high state of consciousness, like there are various meditation techniques in which we do, uh, which we can achieve and attain uh, higher levels of consciousness and uh, the, many people like to do that because it always gives you the sense of of, uh, of of progressing of attaining and achieving but for Nibbana there's no stages there's no levels there's no attainment there's no development or progress because it is a realization rather than an attainment so the problem that human beings have 
uh, with uh, meditation is their worldly mind. The worldly mind is always looking for something, something to grasp, something to say, oh, this is, this is it. This is, this is what I've always been looking for. Looking for wisdom or looking for yourself. How many of you uh, find the teaching of anatta, uh, a mystery, uh, the mystery of anatta, rather disturbing? Because we still, we want to know, well, who am I? What am I? I want to know who I am. And even though this may not be all that conscious in many people, it's still always lingering there. Even as one meditates for years, there's still a, a great desire in the mind to find out, who am I? What am I, anyway? What is the purpose of my life? So we're looking for ourselves through our meditations. And so the Buddha pointed, uh, basically, in his, in his basic teaching of the Four Noble Truths, he pointed to everything that is not self. He, rather than saying or making any statement or con concept about what we are or what our true nature is, because even if he did, if he told us exactly what we are, we still wouldn't know until we meditate and find out ourselves. Because it's not a, the Buddha was not trying to convince us or tell us anything other than guide us to full realization. So this, everything that is not self, he pointed to, and this is what in uh, Theravada school and Pali terminology we call the five khandhas, the panchakanda, the five heaps or the five aggregates are what we are not and this is what we mean by anatta. Everything that you can perceive and conceive, know through the senses, think with the mind, remember, speculate about all that, the thought, the thought process, everything that you can uh, everything mental and physical that you can that has a beginning and an end that arises and passes away this is included in the five heaps the five aggregates and this includes the whole universe that we perceive and conceive through our senses when we look at the sun look at the sky or the moon or the stars that the mind, isn't it? That's within the mind. Those are objects. And yet, our conditioning of our, of our conditioned habits of regarding ourselves as being just this or that always make us seem so distant in time and in space from the objects. And when we look at the stars at night, I used to rem uh, remember and I was in Thailand looking up at the sky at night and feeling terrible frustration because the way things seemed was that this insignificant being, human being, was stuck onto the earth and all the vast universe out there was such a mystery. You look up in, in, in these stars blazing out at night and the mind felt this tremendous mystery and wanted to know what is it all about anyway? I can't stand to look at it very long because it, it's too overwhelming, the universe. When I have to deal with the basic uh, facts of existence, of just survival, 
on this earth. Because this is the way things seem when we're contained within these human bodies. So the earth body, these human bodies are products of the earth. And their nature is to uh, rely on all the things that the earth produces. So we have to eat things that come from the earth. And when these bodies die, the elements, the earth, fire, water and air, return to the earth again. And so all this is a way of recognizing the anatta, that, that these bodies are not self. Now the influence of our body is so strong that, that we, on, on the conventional level of conventional reality, of course, it is very much ourself. So that we, when I talk about myself, I'm talking about this body, I'm not talking about anything else. But we, when we investigate and reflect and begin to comprehend the truth of anatta, not no longer as a belief in some Buddhist teaching, but as an actual experience. When we, uh, and this is what our meditation is about, is to fully comprehend that. So we know that what is not ourself, fully and completely, without any doubt, remaining. So that is complete enlightenment. Now the teaching is so simple, teaching of Buddha is a very simple teaching. You get it down to just, you can, you can say there's the conditioned phenomena, that which arises and passes away. And that's everything that we perceive and know through our senses the sensual world, the body and the conditions of the mind, the feelings, the thoughts and memories, all these, uh, we can use the word conditioned. They are conditioned. They begin and, they, and then they end. Then there's the unconditioned. So we have the conditioned and the unconditioned. Now the Buddhist the Pali term that we use for condition is Sankara. And so Sankara is, uh, what, is, is all that includes all that arises and passes away, whether it's mental or physical, whether it's subjective or objective. We're not quibbling about whether it's out there or inside, whether it's fast or slow. So whether something arises and passes away in an instant or uh, in an eon, it doesn't make any difference as far as the, 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 this way of, of uh, meditating goes, because this, the condition includes all time-bound things, fast or slow, distant or far. Now, the unconditioned is something that we Most people, when they are attached to conditioned phenomena, never realize. So that the unconditioned is something that we have to be much more, we have to slow down and let go of our constant attachment to the conditioned phenomena. Like the space in this room, 
Uh, when you come into the room, did you notice the space or was your attention drawn to the objects in the room? When you come in here, you see the, the walls, the windows, the people, furniture, the, the colors and decoration. And we can sit here all day and discuss whether we like it, dislike it, approve, disapprove, uh, Im uh, imagine ways of improving it, decorating it, or we can become interested in all the people here. Spend the whole day just absorbing into the people in this room, talking to them, turning away from them, thinking about them, loving them, hating them. But the space in the room is, uh, is something that we wouldn't really notice, even though it's here all the time. And when we're busy watching all the people and all the objects in the room, of course we, have no, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't notice the space in it at all. We're so busy thinking, talking, considering, imagining, fantasizing, When we let go of that, we no longer think, fantasize, carry on in that way. We become aware, we feel the, the space in the room. Now the space in the room is peaceful. It has no quality to excite anything. The space in this room, the, the objects in the room can excite or repel, attract or whatever, but the space has no quality that excites, attracts, or repels. And yet we can be aware, fully aware of space, when we're no longer being pulled by the objects in the room, that we're no longer absorbing, being caught up into the objects in the room. When we reflect on the space in the room, we feel a sense of calm. Because the space around you, the space around me, is no different. It's not mine. I can't say this space here belongs to me, or that that belongs to you. <coughs> Nobody, even the craziest, most insane being, I don't think has claimed that. I can claim this is mine, or that, but I can't, um, but who would ever claim the space? And yet space is always present, isn't it? It makes it possible for us to be here together, contained within this room, in this space that is limited by the walls. The same with your mind. Your mind is like infinite space. It can contain everything, like this room, well, the space, uh, space contains this whole building. So space isn't bound by the objects in any way, isn't bound and limited by anything. We can contain, we can limit space uh, like in a, in a room, but the space is unlimited really. It's just the seeming uh, containing it for specific purposes. The same with the mind, the mind is is unlimited, has no boundaries. But we always bind ourselves to the limited conditions, our ideas, views, opinions, theories. There is room enough 
in space for every theory, opinion, and view, every condition. <laughs> they all arise and they pass away. There's no kind of permanent condition. So there's room enough for everybody, every religion, every political view, every thought, every type of human being, uh, every, time of, every type of animal, there's room for everything. And yet human humanity tends to always want to control and limit and say, only these we allow and those don't have any right. They don't have any right to be here. We're always trying to contain and limit, possess, hold on, and bind ourselves to conditions which always take us to death and despair. A condition phenomena, because it's something that arises, it has to pass away. There's nothing that arises that keeps on arising. So if it arises, it, it can only arise for so long and then it passes away. <coughs> and so death is the other, is the, is the end of that which began, which that, of that which is born. Despair is the other side of hope and expectation. So whatever you hope and expect and you attach to that, you will uh, feel disillusionment and despair. When you attach to anything that is arising, such as your, the, the, your own physical body or any condition in nature, it will take you to death. And that's the way it seems, so that when we bind ourselves to any condition that is arising, it only takes us to its opposite. Now when we reach the peak of any condition, then we, then the opposite is, is, is passing. We tend to run away from that. We have the ability to, as soon as anything becomes unpleasant, painful, unsatisfactory, we, we uh, jump into some other condition, something that is arising again. Constant search for sensual pleasure, for excitement, romance and adventure. Why, why do people always, why are they always running after that which is interesting or fascinating, exciting, romantic, adventurous, pleasurable, running away from the opposite, from boredom, from despair, from uh, pain, the cold, old age, sickness, death. All these are conditions that we don't really want to have or be with, we want to get away from them, forget them, not notice them. So meditation, the attitude, is to be one with infinite patience, with conditions, rather than one who's always looking for something. When something becomes disappointing or unpleasant or boring, to run off and find something interesting again. To keep reacting all the time to the conditions we have to coexist with is the cycle of samsara, which we keep, keep make it uh, uh, make it keep cycling all the time, circling around and around as we keep reacting. Now, when we notice the conditions of body and mind as just that, 
It's just a simple recognition and awareness. It's not an analysis or it's not anything special or terribly important. It's just a bare recognition, a seeing, a knowing, a direct knowing that whatever arises passes away. That demands a certain amount of patience. If you have no patience, you, you will, as soon as it becomes unpleasant, you will run away from it. As soon as anything becomes boring, you will uh, run away. You will look for something interesting. As soon as any fear or anger or any nasty, unpleasant condition, painful condition arises, you will run away from it. So meditation is also the ability to endure or bear with the unpleasant. It's not to seek it out, to see, we're, we're not ascetics and going around looking for unpleasant, painful things to, so we can prove, test ourselves and, and, uh, and endure them because that's not the problem. We, there are those kind of perverted individuals who constantly look for painful things because they find it exciting. <laughs> Gives them a stronger sense of self. Okay? I, I really suffer more than anyone else. The Buddha establishes meditation on that which is ordinary rather than that which is special. So Buddhist meditation is mindfulness of the breath, anapanasati, is one type of Buddhist meditation. But it's not a special kind of breath either, it's your ordinary breath. Just the ordinary breath that you have. You meditate on that, you concentrate on that, just that normal breathing. The postures of sitting, standing, walking and lying down, those are very ordinary, aren't they? There's not standing on your head, there's not twirling around, anything kind of special that you'd have to develop any, any special abilities to do, they're the ordinary postures of daily life, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. So uh, the objects of our meditation are very boring for us. What is more boring than one's normal breath and one's normal postures? Meditation upon these ordinary conditions, it, the attitude is one of being infinitely patient, taking or having all the time in the world to be with your, with one inhalation, one exhalation, having all the time, nothing else to do, just being like a very patient person who, or being who has nothing else to do, ever, but just to be with what is. With just sitting, the body sitting down, the body standing up, the body walking, the body lying down. Now that's a very different kind of mental state to have than what we're accustomed to, isn't it? When we're sitting down, we're thinking about this. We don't sit and notice sitting. We either sit and collapse out of exhaustion or sit in read, smoke, eat, talk, do something. The same with the other 
postures. When we lie down, what do we do? We just tend to want to crash out. There's a chance to just fall asleep. So we fall asleep heedlessly, we walk heedlessly, we stand heedlessly, sit heedlessly, and so our lives, we never really see what is now and what is immediate. We're always thinking about what we have to do now in order to get what we want in the future. And that's endless. Even when you get what you want in the future, you find it it's only uh, satisfies you temporarily and then you start thinking of something else you have to have. When I was a child, I remember, when I was a little boy, I saw a toy and I told my mother, I said, if, if you could buy me that toy, I promise I'll never ask for anything ever again. <laughs> And I wasn't lying either, I really believed that. At that moment, the way it seemed was that, that full satisfaction could be gained from owning that toy. And I believed that completely, so I wasn't lying to her. So she went and, and bought the toy and gave it to me. I think I played with it a little while and set it aside. And then I found something else that I wanted. <laughs> And I remembered that because I remember how thoroughly convinced I was that if, if I had just, if she would get me that, give me that one thing, that would satisfy my greed forever. And when it didn't, I be, even at that age, I mean, I can remember that. So, so it must have made an impression that somehow I found even getting what I wanted was somehow disappointing because then I had to start looking for something else the mind tended to go out and look for something else again to desire, to become. So in meditation we're looking at just that kind of moment, uh, that kind of uh, condition in our mind, the movement of desire. Just watching, just recognizing desire. Wanting this, not wanting that. It's not, as Buddhists we're not passing a judgment against desire. Some people think that Buddhists are all against desire. We think desire is bad and we shouldn't have any. They think Buddhist monks, they're, they're, they become Buddhist monks because they're trying to annihilate all their desires. <laughs> so some people think we're a pretty grim lot. <laughs> they're just sitting around trying to repress everything. But the Buddhist teaching wasn't an annihilationist teaching, it was an awakening. So that desire is not something we reject or annihilate, but reflect on and understand. Because it's a condition in nature. There's good desires that are good, desires that are bad. Desires to kill and hurt others and steal their things are called bad desires. And we have those. All of us have desires, uh, bad desires at times, and then there are good ones where we want to help, uh, be kind, uh, develop into good and wise beings. Now when we recognize desire, we, we are, uh, whatever it is, a good one or a bad one, 
That takes wisdom. We're using wisdom. Because only wisdom can see desire. Desire cannot see wisdom. So when you're trying to find wisdom with desire, you, you, find, you, uh, you go around in circles. So don't try to find wisdom, just know desire. Because all that is desire is anatta, not self. So wisdom is something that we use in our meditation, not something that we attain. But the Buddha wisdom is a very humbling kind of wisdom. It's not fantastic. It's not like you're sitting at the top of the macrocosm, knowing everything like God does. Kind of omniscient and wise being, knowing everything about everything. But it's the simple wisdom of Buddha, knowing that whatever arises passes away and is not self. Knowing that the desires that cross your mind, that go through your mind, are just that. They're desires and they're not you. Then in our skillful living of our lives as human beings, we live on the conventional level of reality also, as men, women, laymen, monks, Buddhists, Christians, or whatever. We live using the conventional realities, but we understand those realities as conventions only, not as ultimate so that they're no longer deluding us, no longer blinding us. So the Buddhist, Buddha wisdom is that which knows the conditioned as the conditioned, the unconditioned as the unconditioned. It's as simple as that. So very simple, isn't it? You just have to know two things. the attitude for this week here at Hailey, okay, reflect on what I've said this morning, the attitude of patience, of learning from the very simple ordinary things. When you're meditating, you don't try to attain, but just open up to that, your intentions for meditating. When you're sitting there meditating and you're trying to get something, when you're aware, when you suddenly awaken to the fact that you're trying to get something out of it, that's an, that's an enlightenment, that's an awakening. Then little, tiny little flickers of light that come into, that when we suddenly see things, know, the, know what's really happening. But if you sit here for, for a year trying to become and attain, you feel terribly disappointed at the end of it because you, you will have lost everything. Everything that you put into it you will have lost Then you will have not the right attitude. You will not have the wisdom to have learned from failure even. So in our meditation we learn from both successes and, our, and from our failures. People want, they come to Chitras, they want to meditate. And they fail all the time. Whatever Anapanasati is one of the most frustrating meditation practices ever conceived of. <laughs> People, because they think, I'd like to get something out of it. But as long as you try to get something from Anapanasati, it's not, very, it's not a very giving practice. 
you don't get high off it well you can but you have to do it in the right way and you have to be patient and you have to learn from the successes with it and the failures from both rather than attain or attach to just the the, the good side of Anapanasati we have to be very patient with even the boring, tedious, uh, unpleasant side of it. Until we no longer really care whether it's pleasant or unpleasant because both conditions take us to enlightenment, take us to Nibbana. So now I will end this. this I hope I've been able to uh, help you a little bit <laughs> this difficult subject of meditation. <laughs> <laughs>